what we do at RUF is um, we pick a book of the Bible during this time since we want to explore what Christianity is actually all about. And we just kind of pick a book of the Bible and mow through it. Uh, and one of the reasons why we do that is to protect y'all from just hearing whatever opinions come off the top of my head. I mean, if we're going to try to explore what Christianity is about, then we need to actually pay attention to what it's saying. Um, so last semester, we went through the book of Exodus and just kind of plowed through the book of Exodus. And next semester, we might go through the book of Revelation. But for this semester, we're doing something a little bit different, a little funkier. We are going to explore what the Bible has to say about relationships, what it has to say about dating and singleness and marriage and sexuality. And so that, that we're going to be a little bit more topical in our approach tonight. And so you just need to know on the front end, I don't presume that uh, everybody in this room is a Christian. Or that everybody in this room actually put, would put any stock in what the Bible would have to say. So hear that on the front end. But what I want to do is I want to just invite you to potentially consider what the Bible has to say about these things. And maybe there's actually some wisdom there for us if we were to actually openly embrace what the Bible has to say about relationships. So... With that in mind, let me draw your attention to Genesis chapter 3. If you have this handout, you can go ahead and turn to it. Or if you brought a Bible, we're going to be looking at the third chapter of Genesis. I'll just read the first 15 verses, or you can follow along behind me. Reads this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, that you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray one more time and we'll consider it together. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you that you are not a God that is silent, but you are a God who has revealed yourself, even through stories that are familiar for some of us and for stories that are weird and bizarre for others of us. And so would you come now and would you guide us and lead us into truth and into that which is good and into that which is beautiful? And we would pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my best friends, who is the best man at my wedding, 
When he was in high school, he was crushing on a lady friend of his from his school. And so he worked up the nerve to ask her on a date to go to the movies with him. And she said yes. And so he was very confident, very, uh, you know, walked with a little bit of swagger that week, but he didn't have so much confidence because he also, this is a true story, by the way, he also invited his best guy friend to go with them as a wingman. And so the three of them went on this date, and uh, they're in the theater, sitting kind of in, you know, row like where y'all are. She sits between them, and the movie starts. The, the theater's dark. And he starts working up the courage to reach over and hold her hand. And so, you know, maybe about 20, 30 minutes into the move is he, he, he kind of finally, I'm going to make a move. So he reaches over, grabs her hand, and she accepts. And so there they are, <laughs> two interlocking, sweaty high school hands right there in the movie theater. And in that moment, he's thinking, this is awesome. This movie just instantly got better, way more interesting. He's like on a high right now. So, you know, maybe another hour into the movie goes on. And so he, he, he leans over to whisper something to her to make a funny comment about the movie that they're watching. And he notices she's also holding his friend's hand. <laughs> so here is this girl holding each of the guy's hands uh, next to them. Now, in that one two-hour window of this, my friend's emotional life, he experienced uh, nervousness and fear and then excitement and exhilaration and joy and then rejection and betrayal and anger, all in a two-hour window. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that's an interesting little slice of what relationships are like. They are just a cluster of complicated, contradicting emotions. They are amazing and terrible. You know, the, you know, relationships are like the best thing that we got going and the hardest, most challenging thing that we got going. And so the question is, why is that? How can relationships be so hard and yet so complicated and confusing and terrible at the same time? Well, the Bible really does not waste any time in addressing that question. Right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, this passage deals with that. Why are relationships so good and yet so hard? And so what I want to do for tonight is just to kind of descend into this passage for just a, a, just a few minutes. And I want to draw your attention to three things. We are going to look at the reason for our relational messiness. The reason of our relational, for our relational messiness. The reality of our relational messiness, and then the remedy to our relational messiness. So there you are, three points, and they all start with the same letter, if you're into that kind of thing, like I am. So the reason for it, the reality of it, and then the remedy to it. Okay, so let's get into what the reason is behind why our relationships are so messy and complicated and challenging. Well, to understand the reason, we've got to first go back and understand what's going on in the bigger context of Genesis chapter 3. The bigger context is what came before it, which is a creation story. According to the Christian understanding of the world, God created everything, which, is, which means that there is a fundamental principle at the heart of the Christian understanding of the world, which is this, God is the creator and we are the created. God is the king and we're the subjects. Someone is on the throne controlling the universe and it's not you and it's not me. Now, Adam and Eve would have known that 
They would have known that. They would have believed that. They would have operated out of that reality. So when Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent and says to them, hey, what did God say to you again? And Eve looks at the serpent and says, well, he said we can't eat this tree. And the serpent says, you should eat that tree. And And he makes a case for why Adam and Eve should do this thing. So the serpent has his case for why they should eat it. God has already made his case for why they should not eat it. Okay, so what does Eve do? If you look at verse 6, here's the crucial point. Eve looks at these two options and says, I'll decide. I'll choose what's right for me. She should have said, I will obey simply because God is my king and I'm his subject. He is the Lord and I'm not. But as soon as she said, I I will have the right to decide what is true for my life, what I'm going to do with my life, that may sound like a very small thing for you, but that is a seismic shift as far as relating to God as king and Lord. Now, I I try to think of a way to um, illustrate what's going on here. And, And the best way that I know how to illustrate it is to talk about what is probably my favorite show on television right now, which is called uh, Impractical Jokers. I don't know if you've seen the show. It comes on True TV, and it is, it, is the mo- it is so stinking funny. I laugh at the show so hard, I have to get my asthma inhaler sometimes to like <laughs> help bring me back up to speed. But okay, so here's, what, here's the setup of the show. It's kind of set up like a game show, and there's four guys that are in it. And it's a hidden camera kind of reality kind of show. And so the setup is one guy will go out while the other three guys are hiding behind, kind of behind a wall or something, and they're looking at the screens of the hidden cameras that's being filmed of the guy out in a public setting. And he has an earpiece in his ear, and they're backstage with a microphone telling him what he has to do and what he has to say. And if he refuses to do what they say, then he kind of loses that round. So they will say things like, hey, you're in the, they're like in a shopping mall or something. They're in a grocery store. Go up to that guy over there and Eskimo kiss him. Like, go up to that stranger and rub your nose against his nose. And he goes and does it, and it's stinking hilarious. Or they're, they're, in, um, they're in Central Park. And they'll say, okay, go over to that guy sitting on a bench, and I want you to apologize to him and say, I'm really sorry because I just ate three pounds of pork while staring at you. (laughs) And so every single time these voices come in, I think that's an amazing line. Um, Every single time these voices come in, they have to make this decision. Am I going to listen to the voice that's in my ear telling me to do this? Or am I going to listen to the voice in my own head saying, that's too far, I can't cross that line, that's, that's too ridiculous. Now, in the same way, Eve is there, Adam and Eve are there, and this voice is coming in from God saying, I expect you to obey me because I'm God and you're not. And the moment that she said, hold on, let me consider whether or not I want to, at that moment she had already disobeyed. Before she had even eaten of the tree, she had elevated herself to the position of God to say, I will decide what's right for my life. And of course, she chooses to disobey anyway. And so here's what this means. We're getting into the heart of what's behind our relational messiness. It's essentially uh, that we're sinful. Now, that's a Christian-y word. What do we mean by that? Sin is essentially, here's a basic definition of sin. Sin is mankind substituting himself for God. I want to call the shots. I want to write the script. I want to run my life apart from what God wants me to do with my life. Mankind substituting himself for God, climbing on the throne, kicking God off and saying, I essentially want to be God. So what is the reason then? Let's boil all of what I'm talking about right down. 
What is the reason for our relational messiness? Here it is. Self-centeredness. We want to be king. We want to be in control. We want life. We, we want to be the center of the universe. We want everything to revolve around us. We are fundamentally committed to self. Now, this, you don't have to be a rocket science to think through this, but just think out the implications. Let's start really broadly. Why are you here at UT? It's for you. It's for you. You're here because of you. You're here because uh, I, I want to get uh, good grades, to get a good resume, so I can get a good job, so I can get money. You're here to invest in yourself. Or you're here because you want to get friends, and you want to have a good time, and you want to get that MRS degree, or you want to get that ring by spring, or whatever. <laughs> whatever it is, you're here for you, right? You're here for yourself. Think about how we do, think about how we do uh, campus ministries, or how we do church. You pick which campus ministry or which church you want to go to largely based off of you. Does it have cool music? Are the people cool there? Does it entertain me? And then you leave when what? When I stop getting something out of it. It just shows you that we're just all, always committed to self. Or think about how we do um, just our romantic dating relationships. So often, relationships start because of how the other person makes you feel. That I love being around that person. I love them because they make me feel good. They make me feel a certain way. And when that, stop, when that feeling stops, when I start getting bored or someone else is kind of pick, you know, piquing my interest, then I leave. I feel smothered. I want some me time back. Whatever. Selfishness is what drives the relationship, and so often selfishness is what destroys the relationship. Now, I'm not a complete idiot. I mean, I'm relatively good-sized idiot, but I'm not a complete idiot, and so I know that some selfishness is, of course, just unavoidable. I mean, there's a good time and place to take care of yourself, to love yourself. All I'm trying to do is just make the point to show you that we all have a fundamental operating system. Every single one of us in this room, after Genesis 3, that says, my ultimate commitment is to me. And the Bible looks at you and says, and that's why our relationships are a mess. That's why we have the problems that we do. That's the problem. That's the reason behind all of our relational messiness. Okay, but let's keep going. Because we need to look secondly at the reality of relational messiness. So what I want to do is basically just connect the dots here. If that's what's driving, that's what's behind all of our problems in our relationships, then what is the fallout? What does it practically look like? What does the reality of our relational messiness look like if that's our fundamental starting point? Okay, well, think of it like this. Um, not that you've ever read the instruction manual to your car, but let's say you did. Let's say you opened up your glove compartment and started reading your instruction manual. You would find in there instructions that you should only put gasoline in your car to run it. Now, what if you read that and you said, only gasoline? That's so restrictive. That is so oppressive. I mean, I, like, why would these people try to tell me how to run my car? I, I want to put in pancake syrup, and I'm, fine, I'm totally free with putting pancake syrup in. If you did that, if you went against the design of the maker's instructions, the fallout would be damage and breakdown and destruction. In the same way, 
When human beings look at God and say, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to run my life. I will choose to run it the way I want to run it. It's like looking at your maker and saying, I'm going to put pancake syrup in this thing. And the, the fallout is the same result. Damage, destruction, breakdown. And actually what Genesis 3 does is it gives you a, a disturbing landscape of how bad the damage is. And there's, man, there's so much loaded into this passage. We're going to spend a few weeks just combing through Genesis 3. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of skim across the top of it really quickly and, and show you um, what I'm talking about here. If you look at verse 7... I want to just kind of highlight three quick things. The first sign of the reality of relational messiness is self-protection. Self-protection. Look at verse 7. Adam and Eve feel exposed and naked, and so they cover themselves up. They don't want to be seen for who they really are, so they cover up. They present to the world an image that they want to be seen as because they don't want someone to really see them for who they really are. Does that sound familiar? Okay, that's the first sort of sign, is, is just self-protection. L- look at the first sign, shame. Or, sorry, the second, sh- the second sign is shame. And we're going to really camp here, because uh, there's so much to talk about on this particular subject. We're going to camp here a lot next week. But look at verse 10. We'll just talk about it briefly. Adam says he was afraid because he was naked. He has fear because he's vulnerable, because he's exposed. He's so deeply insecure because he's vulnerable. And so what he does is he wants to cover up because he thinks, you know, if God sees me, if other people see me as I really am, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be labeled. He feels dirty, he feels worthless, so he hides. I'm sure that resonates with some of us. Here's the third sign of sort of relational messiness. It's blame. If you look at verse 12, God confronts Adam about his sin, and what does Adam say? It's the woman's fault. And then God in the very next verse confronts the woman. He says, what's the deal? And Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. Everybody is passing the blame. Everybody is saying, it's not my responsibility, it's theirs. No one's owning the fact that it's their problem. They're always saying, my problem is something else. It's someone else, it's my circumstances, it's this person. And so look, if you put all these things things together, the, the Bible is just very honest to say our relationships are infected with self-protection, with shame, and with blame. That's the fallout when we are fundamentally committed to ourselves. When that's our starting point and we get into our relationships, that's what happens. And in fact, okay, think this through. If you think this through, if you're fundamentally committed to yourself and you enter into another relationship, that reduces the other person to either a vehicle or an obstacle. They're a vehicle in that they give you what you want, or they're an obstacle in that they block you from getting what you want. So, okay, think about it like this. If the thing that you desire and demand the most is for your boyfriend to give you attention, that when you're at parties together, you want him to be next to you, near you, uh, you want him to respond to your texts quickly, uh, you want to, like, the weekend is sacred, y- that's y'all's time together. If that's what you kind of demand is attention from him, and he gives that to you, he is a vehicle. He's a vehicle giving you what you want. And how do you feel about him when he is a vehicle giving you what you want? You feel awesome about him, you're thankful for him, you're so encouraged and excited that he's your boyfriend. But what if he doesn't give you what you demand? What if at parties he goes and, like, talks to some other people? 
What if it takes him like two hours to respond to your text? What if on the weekend he just decides to bro out instead of hang out with you? Then how do you feel? Well, he's no longer being a vehicle. He's an obstacle blocking you from what you want, which is his attention. And then how do you feel about him then? Well, it's really hard to hide your feelings of disappointment and irritation and impatience with him. Or, okay, think about it from the guy's perspective. Guys, if what you demand and want from her, from your girlfriend, is uh, respect for her to listen to you and uh, you know, compliment you and tell you that she's proud of you when you do something great, as, as long as she's doing that, then she is being a vehicle. She's giving you what you want. And how do you feel about her? You feel so, you know, stoked about her. <laughs> wow, that came out. Okay. Just going back to 1987 there. You feel so stoked about her, amped, jacked up about her. You're so pumped about her. And um, because she's a vehicle, she's giving you what you want. But if she doesn't do those things, if she's... If she blocks you from that, so let's say you know, you're, at a, you're having a group discussion and she disagrees with you, or even if she gently makes fun of you in front of your friends, now she's an obstacle blocking what you want. And how do you feel about her at that point? You're pissed at her and you don't want anything to do with her. This is why, by the way, this explains why there are couples out there that on paper, make absolutely no sense. You know what I'm talking about? Because on the one hand, this is the couple that is so like obsessed with each other, and they've isolated themselves from all their friends. They only spend time with each other, and they do the PDA thing. And you just want to vomit when you're around them, and they're so like they're so into each other. And yet, this is the same couple that can have these like World War Three nuclear throwdown fights at 2 a.m. in the cookout parking lot. Like these are. <laughs> These are the couples just, it's just so toxic and so unhealthy and, 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 and they bring you in as their friend and now you're counseling them and trying to walk through them with this. And eventually, you know, they, they have this break and there's, a, there's some time and they eventually they get back together and they're all ooey gooey and they, they love each other. Like, how do you explain the couple that is so, like, obsessed with each other on the one hand and yet so explosive on the other? Here's why. It's because... They love the other person when the other person is a vehicle meeting their selfish needs. And they hate the other person when the other person is an obstacle blocking their selfish needs. This is the reality of our problem. Our problem is that we're, 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 just, we're fundamentally committed to ourself. And as long as we're committed to ourself, then relationships are just opportunities for us to use people. The fact that Tinder exists <laughs> proves my point. That we just want to use people. I, I, we don't, I don't really care about you. I'm just going to use you so that my needs get met. And this is the problem. With, this is our problem. This is why our relationships are a mess. So what's the remedy then? If that's the reason and the reality, then is, I mean, is there any hope? Or are we just kind of stuck in this obsessive, explosive dynamic? Well, no, I think there is a remedy. And I think Genesis... Uh, three actually holds out for us a great remedy and a great hope. If you'll look at the very last verse that's included there, let me read it. Verse 15. This is God talking to the serpent, to Satan. He says, I will put enmity, meaning warfare, I will put warfare, hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
what God is doing is basically he's making this promise to say there's going to be this descendant from this woman that is going to crush Satan, crush sin, crush selfishness. But in the process, he's going to be bruised. He's going to be injured in the process. And as the story unfolds, it's very clear that what Genesis 3.15, who Genesis 3.15 is talking about is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who has come to crush sin, crush selfishness, crush Satan. But that he himself gets crushed in the process. Okay, think about it. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he's in a garden. Just like Adam and Eve. And just like Adam and Eve, he had a choice whether or not he was going to submit to God's plan for him or if he was going to rebel against it. And just like Adam and Eve, he was afraid. But instead of what Adam and Eve did, instead of choosing death, instead of choosing life, Jesus chooses death in order to bring about life. Adam and Eve, instead of choosing life, plunged everything into death. And Jesus himself plunges himself into death in order to bring everything back to life. So instead of an Adam and Eve where they're covering each other up and they're covering themselves up, Jesus gets stripped naked on a cross. Why, though? Why is Jesus being stripped on a cross and bearing this punishment? Here's why. It's because he is taking the penalty that is reserved for rebels. For rebels like you, for rebels like me. Remember what we said before? People look at God and they say, I want to be a king. I want to be the Lord. I want to run my life the way that I want to run it. I want to be you. Sin is mankind substituting themselves for God. But God comes down and instead of giving you and giving me what rebels deserve, he crawls up on a cross himself and he gets stripped. He gets obliterated. He gets crushed. He takes the penalty that you and I deserve so that he could give you and me what he deserves. Sin is mankind substituting themselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for man. He comes down and expends everything. He gets stripped so that he could give you what he deserves, which is what? Glory and beauty and righteousness. And when you find yourself resting in the person and the work of Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, clothed in his glory, clothed in his grace and his beauty, that's where you find the hope and the remedy to deal with your selfishness and to deal with your relational messiness. Think about it like this. I've been married to my wife, Catherine, for over eight years now. And when, I, when we first got married, it, there was almost like this instantaneous change in me. Because I no longer um, felt insecure when she, when she didn't respond to my texts. I no longer felt worried that she was going to break up with me when... I was treating her like a tool. Like I, I, I never, I, I found a newfound stability in me based off of the security of our marriage. And that radically changed the way that I related to other women. No longer taking girls out on dates. I no longer really cared if girls liked me. I you know, wanted them to think that I was the jam anymore because I, I was married. <laughs> and in a very, <laughs> very similar way, when you're in a relationship with Jesus, the Bible does describe that as like it's, it's kind of like a marriage. And when you're connected to the stability of him, when you are reassured of his love and his commitment and his goodness to you, that radically changes everything. Whereas before you were so needy and needed other people to fill you, in Jesus you're filled. So that you don't need other people to be the source of your happiness anymore. You're actually freed to serve them because you're no longer demanding that they serve you. 
You know, before you were so selfish and autonomous and I'm going to run my life and I'm going to do it my way and you're also the ones with the panic attacks and having you know, anxiety because when you dress up and play God, you can't do that and not go crazy. But when you find yourself in Jesus, you're finally free to say, okay, yeah, my life is not about me anymore. I'm, I'm free in the reality that someone's on the throne and it's not me and that's a good thing. And you're finally relieved and you can rest in that reality. So don't you see, when, when, this is different than just believing in God. Just believing that God exists doesn't do this to your soul. It's only when you see God coming down, substituting himself for you, that's when you get the inner rest, the relief, the, the, the freedom, the fulfillment. That's the remedy to deal with your selfishness. It's actually the remedy to deal with your relational messiness as well. And that's what we're going to kind of unpack the rest of the semester. And so what I want to do tonight as we close is I want to invite you tonight, maybe for the first time, to take your eyes off of yourself and to fix them upon your substitute, your glorious, beautiful, sacrificial substitute. And as you gaze upon him, allow that to burn away the selfishness, to melt away your commitment to yourself once you find him so much more glorious and beautiful and lovely than you thought he was. Take your eyes off of yourself and look upon him. That's your invitation tonight. Let me pray. Father, if you would, give us grace to do just that. To, to be pulled outside of ourselves. That we would be able to look and to behold you for how beautiful and glorious you truly are. Would that melt us and move us and make us the kind of people that have rest. That are filled. That are relieved. That are finally free to be able to serve you and serve other people, would you transform us into a type of people that is no longer just so committed to ourselves and finally able to love others and to love you? Do that in my heart because I need inner renovation. And do that in the hearts of these folks here tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.